glad that y'all are here. I'm going to, I'm officially setting a timer. So I'm going to go for an hour and uh, then we'll stop and we'll take a break and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of explain it. So uh, here we go. Y'all ready? Timer set. Boom. Um, so here's, uh, here's uh, kind of the rationale behind why we're doing this big Bible overview in, in two hours. Um, it's the same kind of idea, you know whenever you go to an airport or remember when shopping malls were a thing and you go to a shopping mall and you, you were looking for something, you don't know where your flat is, you don't know where the Apple store is and so you go to the, you go to the upright uh, map and find the dot that says you are here. And the reason you're doing that is because you, you, you need to get a bird's eye overview of the whole surroundings to get your bearings so you can make sense of what's on the ground. And so that's kind of the same idea of what we're doing here is we're going to do this big aerial overview of the, the Bible as a whole so that when you get on the ground level, the, the, the particular little details make sense and you're oriented and you know where you are. Because if you're anything like me, um, a big part of my Christian experience, I'd, I'd hear a sermon, or I'd read a passage of the Bible, or I'd you know go to a Bible study, and you hear these little snippets, these little slices of the Bible, and it, it began to feel a little bit like the Bible was just like kind of a big bag of a trail mix. You know, you've got, you, you reach in, you got peanuts and you got almonds, you got M&Ms, raisins, you know, whatever else. And it's kind of like the Bible is just this big bag of stuff and you reach in, sometimes you get a parable, sometimes you get a story, you get a little prophecy, you get a law, you get something. But I had no conception that the Bible as a whole was this bigger, interlocking, interconnected story. So what we're going to do today, here's kind of the approach that I'm going to do. I'm going to be interacting with this guy. Hopefully everybody can see it. Is um, I want to trace uh, the four main kind of plot points. I'm calling them chapters of the Bible. Uh, every story, depending on how you, and people use different words, but every major story has kind of four plot points. You have a setting, and you have a crisis that in gets introduced, and you have a climax, and then you have a resolution. And so the four main chapters, of the Bible kind of follow that same arc of uh, creation and the fall, redemption, and restoration. Some, some theologians call it consummation instead, but anyway. And as we go through the story, uh, I'm going to trace through these four big themes. There's lots of themes in the Bible. You could, tr you could, you could trace tons of little things throughout the Bible. These are four of the biggies. So we're just doing four biggies, and we're just going to kind of trace them as we go. And um, uh, if, if as we're going, you have questions that come up in your mind or you want clarification over something or you're curious about something, write it down. And I'm going to leave time at the end for us to interact and ask questions. Uh, this is going to feel a lot like kind of drinking from a fire hose. And if we stop and take questions as we go, I'm afraid we won't be able to get through the whole thing. So we're going we're gonna to blast. I'm going to spray water all over your face. And then we'll leave time at the end. And so just write your questions as, we, as you go. Does that make sense? All right, well, let's begin. Let's jump in uh, where the Bible does, which is uh, creation. There it is, um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. First verse of the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
And as you go through Genesis 1, as God's creating stuff, He creates this and He says it's good, and He creates that and He says it's good, and He creates this and it's good. And at the end of that chapter, the, the crescendo of after God has created everything, He looks back and there it is in verse 31, God saw all that He had made and it was very good. And so that's really important. The Bible sets up by God creating a good, beautiful, harmonious world. In fact, the word world in Greek is the word cosmos. That's where we get the word cosmetology or cosmetics. It has to do with beauty. has to do with uh, uh, harmony. And that's how God created the world. The, the Hebrew word to describe the state in which God created all of this is the word shalom. Maybe you've heard that word before. Uh, I put a little... A quote from a guy, a theologian, author, Cornelius Plantinga, from his book. He has the best definition on this. He says this, Shalom, well, I say all, his quote is, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call Shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, Shalom means universal flourishing wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So, that's how the Bible begins, with the way things ought to be. Harmony and justice between God and people and people and each other and people within themselves and people in their own environment. And this introduces us to, uh, we see our first major theme, which is the presence of God. As God creates uh, everything, He has this uh, unique spot in the earth called the Garden of Eden, in which he uniquely dwells. And you begin to wonder, okay, I thought God was omnipresent, I thought God was everywhere. Yes, that's true, and yet, as we're going to see as this, as this story unfolds, God's presence dwells in kind of concentrated form in certain specific areas, which is confusing, it's mysterious, but here the Bible begins, and God's presence dwells with Adam and Eve in the Garden. I've, I included Genesis 3.8, it says that Adam walked and talked with God. God. The book of Ezekiel says that the garden is referred to as the sanctuary of God. This is where God dwells. The, the reason why uh, the Garden of Eden is paradise is because that's where God is. That's where he dwells with his people. So everything is, um, and I'm, and I'm going to just suggest the Bible, in Genesis 2 says that the Garden of Eden is kind of somewhere in this area. This is the map. Uh, hopefully you can follow my map here. This is water. I tried to make it blue. Italy's over here. Greece, Mediterranean. Over here is kind of Israel-ish. Africa, Egypt. You're following along? So, um, right after all this gets set up, we have our kind of second major theme that gets introduced, which is the kingdom of God. And this is maybe the biggest theme of the whole Bible. And it begins by God creating people in his own image. You see that in Genesis 1.27. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? 
Well, um, you may be surprised to hear this, but that language of being made in the image of God is not unique to Christianity. In fact, this was language that was used, uh, especially at the time, uh, very prominently in the world of Egypt, that the Pharaoh, the king, was referred to as the image of God. And so when people looked at the king, they realized, okay, this is God's representation of who God is in the world. And what um, kings did, what pharaohs did back then, is they made statues of themselves and spread them throughout their empire as a way to kind of show the extent of their empire that, so that when everybody saw those images, they saw, okay, this is, this is part of the land that is ruled by this particular emperor, this particular pharaoh. In fact, I had a seminary professor, he said he went to this museum in, um, uh, in Egypt, and it was just tons and tons, thousands and thousands of little statues, images of the king, of the pharaoh. And uh, this isn't just a weird ancient thing that happened back then. You remember when, um, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, Iraq, however you say it, in the 90s. You remember, in, I think it was 2003, there's this kind of famous image of U.S. soldiers pulling down a big statue of Saddam Hussein. You, you remember that image? It's, this, it's, it's, this, it's the same idea. Saddam Hussein had statues of himself kind of around his empire as a way to say, I'm who's in charge here. It's the same way um, uh, I've heard the same dynamic in North Korea where you have the big posters, big pictures of the president kind of all over the place. It's the, these images. But here's what's fascinating. Moses, who's writing Genesis, is saying it's not just the kings, it's not just the pharaohs that represent God on the earth. It's every human being. Every human being is made in his image and therefore are representing the rulership of God to the world. And they have a task. They have a job to do. Look at, um, uh, look at this next thing under uh, number three, the mission of God. God says to them, God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over, the, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God says three things to them. I want you to be fruitful and increase in number, which you're going to hear over and over and over as we go through this, which means I want you to have a lot of babies, and I want more and more images. I want more and more of my images spread throughout the world. He says, I want you to fill the earth, which is really important because what God is saying, if, if they're theoretically here, God is saying, I don't want you to just stay in the garden. I want you to expand the garden. The rest of the world is uh, uninhabitable. It's, it's wild. There's work to be done. I want you to move throughout the world and fill it with my images. And the third thing he says, I want you to subdue the earth, which is, uh, uh, has to do with rulership. I want you to rule the world on behalf of God. I want, you know, images of God in the Bible are seen as like vice presidents, vice, uh, vice kings. And he's saying, okay, I want you to go and represent me and my rulership throughout the entire world. Fill the world with my images and bring my will, my empire to the earth in the same way that my will is being perfectly done in heaven right now. That's the, that's the game plan for the kingdom of God. Now, third major theme comes up right out. This is all in the opening chapters of Genesis. God creates this covenant with Adam. 
And uh, covenants are a weird word. Um, in a, uh, we don't really use that language a ton anymore, but it basically means uh, a binding agreement. It's a way to describe a relationship in which two parties agree to terms and obligations. In, in a very, this is a covenant means more than a contract, but for our purposes here, it's, it's, it can be similar. It's like your relationship with your phone, your cell phone provider, AT and T, Verizon, whoever. Uh, you have these this arrangement with them. Uh, they say you give us money, and if you do, then we will provide you with mediocre cell phone service, and that's the that's the arrangement of that kind of covenant. So um, God makes all of these covenants, as you're going to see throughout the Bible, and these aren't disconnected relational arrangements. These are all building on each other. It's kind of like a um, like a snowball rolling down a, a snowy hill, as it were. It's it's gathering momentum and building and expanding and getting fuller and fuller, and we'll see that kind of unfold. But God creates this um, covenant with Adam, and you see this in Genesis 2.15. It says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, and the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it says, Adam, this is an all-you-can-eat buffet. Eat whatever you want. There's one tree that's off-limits. Don't eat that. Everything else is yours. And um, just like all covenants, there are blessings if you fulfill your terms of the covenant. There are curses if you don't. Consequences, curses if you don't. If you obey my word, do what I've told you to do, you will experience life. You will live. Uh, that you will experience the blessing. If you don't, if you if you violate, if you disobey, you'll experience the curse of the covenant, and you will die. You'll introduce death and destruction into the world. So those are the blessings and the curses. You see that in again verse 15 and uh, 16. Same way with your relationship with AT&T or Verizon. If you don't pay, if you do pay, you'll receive the blessing of cell phone service, and if you don't pay, you'll receive the curse of getting you know your service cut off. Pretty simple, kind of straightforward. So, uh, last thing I'll say about this before we move on is that um, God's covenant with Adam, this whole relational arrangement with Adam, was not merely with Adam as an individual human being, but it's also with all of humanity. Adam's representing the entirety of humanity in this arrangement. And you think, well, that feels a little unfair. I didn't ask for Adam to act on my behalf. Um, but if you think about it, this is how every... This is how a lot of the ways that human society is just structured. Our world is set up by representatives. Even our, our, our government, we hire or we, we elect representatives to go and represent us so that we don't have to go to all of these boring government meetings and vote on every small little thing. We just say, you go do it on our behalf. And so however you vote, you're representing the people that voted for you. Um, our uh, you know, lawyers represent their clients. Parents represent their uh, children. Uh, international embassies represent their country. In fact, even wh what we experienced with the Grizzlies. Um, this morning I was talking with people and we, we kept using this language about, oh, how disappointing it was that we lost. And you think, we? We don't play for the Grizzlies. We didn't even go to Los Angeles. We weren't even there. And yet we, somehow they are representing us. They're representing Grizz Nation, as it were. And so th this is the idea as, as 
Adam is, is, you know, entered into this arrangement. He's representing not just him, but all of humanity with him. So this is the big setup. Just to pause and summarize where we are. Here's the setup of the Bible. God says, okay, I'm, I'm, I've made you. I've, I've created this good, beautiful, amazing world. I put God. I put my people in it. Uh, my images. I want these images to spread. I want them to work and so represent me in the world that uh, they are bringing my will to earth in the same way that it's being done in heaven. And it's all going to hinge upon Adam. That if he obeys these the the, the terms of my word and, and my my guidance for him, he will flourish and there will be life. And if he doesn't it will be bad. That's the setup. So how does a man, Adam, do? Well, the next major chapter of the Bible is called the fall. So it's not good. And so um, here's what happens next. Uh, Genesis 3, uh, God allows for Adam and Eve's loyalty to their king to be tested. As you know, Satan shows up in the form of a serpent and deceives them and lies to them and basically says, I included it, Genesis 3, 4, uh, you won't die. He just directly contradicts God. God says, you will die if you eat of this tree. Satan says, no, you won't. And uh, so they rebel. They rebel against God's authority. They disobey God's uh, word. They break the, the covenant. And as they do so, instead of receiving all the blessings, they receive all the curses. In fact, if you read through the end of Genesis 3, God is cursing uh, the man, he's cursing the woman, he's cursing the serpent, he's cursing the earth itself. It's like the whole world suddenly just got all jacked up and out of whack. And so uh, I think it's really important to pause. I included a couple of bullet points in your handout. When, you, when, when we talk about sin, when sin enters the world and the condition of sin, it's really important to think about it in these categories. Uh, first, um, sin is universal. That when this moment happens, sin impacts everything. It's kind of like having a clean glass of water and then taking a, um, a bag of tea and you know, steeping the tea in the water. The, the, the tea discolors and, and mixes throughout the water, so now everything is mixed up by the tea. You can't separate them any longer. Every, sin has infected and spread through every part of creation. And secondly, uh, this shows you that sin is, for lack of a better word, an add-on. God did not create human beings to be broken. God created human beings beautiful and righteous and good, and sin came in after the fact and distorted and corrupted us in our very nature. Third thing, uh, this shows you that there is both an objective and subjective reality to sin. There's a, there's a legal uh, uh, objective, for lack of a better word, component to sin, and there's a personal corrupting impact on sin. So um, the best analogy I could try to come up with to explain this is let's say I was being particularly nasty and I wanted to blow up your car and I put a bomb under your car and I blew it up and in that explosion I get burned and I get damaged as a result. So objectively, I'm guilty for the, for the crime that I just committed, and personally, I'm damaged by the very thing that I just did. So there's an objective, subjective, uh, legal, and you could say existential component to sin as well. And then the last little feature about sin is that it's cosmic. 
it doesn't, this moment doesn't just impact human beings, it impacts the very world itself. In fact, you get later in the Bible, and in Romans chapter 8, it starts talking about how all of creation is groaning. The world itself, I mean, you think about uh, famines and uh, pandemics and it, it, just natural disasters. Like, the world itself is out of joint and thrown out of whack because of this moment. So, uh, you start reading the Bible from this point on, and everything has a very different flavor. The very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, uh, people are already murdering each other. You have, the, you have Cain and Abel, you have that story. Genesis 5, you get into Genesis 5, and theologians refer to this chapter as the death chapter, because it just kind of reads like a, uh, it's just a lineage of all of Adam and Eve's descendants. So-and-so lived this many years, and then he died. So-and-so this, lived this many years, and then he died. But you read it, you read through it, and it says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and you realize, okay, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Death and destruction, it's, it's God's good world has been vandalized. That's kind of how the Bible goes. And so you, you get to Genesis 6, and here's God's assessment of uh, humankind. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. It's a pretty overwhelming statement. So, right on the heels of this cosmic catastrophe is when you get introduced to this fourth theme. Uh, right in the midst of this, in Genesis 3, as God is cursing the serpent, here's what God says to the serpent in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is a weird verse. It's a loaded verse. There's too much in here to talk about just in a flyover. But at least what I want you to see is that embedded in this little promise, God's looking at the serpent and saying, Eve is going to have a descendant, an individual, a singular he, and he's going to come along and he is going to crush your head and you are going to strike his heel. Which means he's going to crush your face in, he's going to win, you're going to die, but he's going to be wounded in the process. And so I'm just going to put, um, there's this crushed, it's too low for me to write uh, legibly, but there you go. Satan's going to be crushed, and whoever does this is also going to be wounded in the process. So there's this, um, there's this Savior coming. There's this Messiah that's going to come down the road who's going to do this thing. And then, after all these curses and promises, here's how Genesis 3 closes out. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So, if this is... If this is Eden, people are kicked out. So the whole kingdom of God project is now halted. You've got sin introduced in the world. Adam and Eve screwed it all up. They're kicked out of the garden. Uh, how is this whole kingdom of God project going to keep going? Well, the story keeps moving along, and we get introduced to this guy named Noah. And God makes a covenant with him. And here's how this goes. Uh, you remember Noah, the uh, cute little children's story? You get all the animals and they go in the ark and it's 
so cute. You read all the pictures to the kids. It is a terribly disturbing story if you think about it. It's, it's God saying, I'm going to drown all of humanity except for one family. And you just start thinking through what in the world that could even look like. It's horrifying. But God is basically saying, I'm going to, the wickedness on the earth has become so bad, I'm going to basically wipe it all except for this one family, this one family to preserve this, this descendant, this Messiah that's going to come. I'm going to take this one family and keep them alive. Basically, we're going to restart. We're going to start the whole thing over. And, um, uh, so look at Genesis 9, 11. It says, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So he wipes the earth, makes this covenant with Noah. That's never going to happen again. In fact, to pro he makes this promise to Noah. And you remember the sign of this promise was a rainbow, a bow. A bow is a, is a is, you know, a bow and arrow. It's a, it's a weapon. And God says, um, the next time that I unload my wrath on humanity for their sin, it's not going to be pointed down at you. It's going to be pointed up at me. That's this promise. The bow is aiming up, not down. And after this new world gets established, you have this new family that's starting over, what does God say to Noah 9-7? As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Same thing he told Adam. Same game plan. Fruitful, multiply, I want the images, I want the kingdom, do the thing. So, uh, now we get introduced to our, um, our good friend Abram, or Abraham, as the story keeps going. Because now um, God has been, the whole story has been zoomed way out about all of humanity, and now it starts zooming in on this one family. As more and more families are populating the earth again, there's this one family uh, that God starts starting to work with more specifically, and it's Abraham. So look at, uh, look at this next passage, Genesis 11. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. So this is, you know, the land of Canaan. I think that's how you spell it, right? Two A's? Yeah. Uh, and when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. So, Abraham's somewhere else. God says, I want you to go there, and I'm going to do three things for you. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to have you and your family be instruments by which the whole world is blessed. And, secondly, I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you lots and lots and lots of children and grandchildren. In fact, God looks at Abraham at one point and says, I'm going to make your children as, as many as the stars in the sky, as much as the sand on the seashore. And so Abraham starts to have all these kids, and those kids have kids. And, in fact, this is where you get um, the people of Israel. 
Israel as a people group, uh, you know, Jacob was Abraham's grandson. Jacob has 12 sons, and these are the 12 tribes of Israel. So God's basically looking at Abraham and his family and saying, look, y'all are the A-team. Uh, y'all are my chosen people to do this kingdom of God thing. What you do? And then the third thing, he says, I'm going to bring you back to the land as the launching point to jumpstart this whole kingdom of God project. I want the world filled with my images that are doing my will, that are spreading my will, and we're blessing the entire world as a, as a result. Kingdom of God back in action. And then look at, um, look at Genesis 17, just to reiterate this. When Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless, and then I will make my covenant between you, between me and you, and you will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. Same word. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So, that's what God promises to Abraham. I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you blessing, and I'm going to give you lots and lots of descendants. You're, you and your family are going to be the A-team, my chosen people, to do this kingdom of God thing, to bless the world with my very presence and my glory. So, the book of Genesis starts to come to a close. God's people are here, and because of a famine, um, they are they leave that land and they go to Egypt. And so by the time the book of Genesis ends, uh, and the next book of the Bible begins, you have the hopes of the world, God's people, the Israelites, in Egypt, out of the land, enslaved, and in shackles. And that's the first book of the Bible. So we've got 65 more books to go, and uh, we'll get there. We'll keep going. But that's, that's, that's Genesis. So you've got God's people here, and then the, the story continues, and so this whole kingdom of God project keeps getting screwed up, and so we get introduced to this next guy. I know I'm slanting down. I'm going to try and bring it back up. Moses. Uh, at this point, Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. And um, during this time, God raises up this individual who is uh, who's an Israelite named Moses. And he uses him to be this the one who's going to liberate his people from this situation and get back to this whole project. So look at Exodus uh, 3. It says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God says, I'm going to rescue my people. I'm going to bust them out of prison, as it were. It's like you read the book of Exodus, which, by the way, the word Exodus means departure or exit. 
It's, it's like a Ocean's Eleven uh, heist uh, reading, where it's like God's going to come in, and He does the ten plagues, and God's people bust out, and they cross the, you know, the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, and um, they're, they're liberated from Egypt, and, and the game plan is to get back to here as ground zero to start this whole kingdom of God thing again. But... Um, when they are, uh, when they leave Egypt and they're going to this land that is uh, uh, flowing with milk and honey, which is this picture of uh, blessing, this picture of fertility, that it's so vibrant. There are so many resources there. It's this picture of paradise, which is uh, you know kind of Edenic um, language. Instead of going straight there, they're wandering around in the wilderness for. 40 years, and as they're wandering around in the wilderness, they get to this place called Mount Sinai, where God um, gives them and His people the law. So here's uh, Exodus 19. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, which is another word for Israel, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles', eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine, you is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. In other words, God's saying, because I saved you completely by grace, I am now going to tell you how to live in this world, and I'm going to give you this law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them uh, all of these laws on how to structure their lives and their society. There's laws about sexuality and laws about how how you clean stuff and laws about mildew and laws. I mean, it's just like laws and laws and laws and laws. This is like, this is what you know, Leviticus is all about. And so if you've ever done a Bible reading plan, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and you get to this part, this is, Leviticus has claimed many of the lives of the Bible reading plan because you, you, you get to this part and you're like, Ah, we're, we're done because it's just, it's just there's so so many laws, so much stuff, and it's overwhelming. But part in the midst of that, all of these laws, we get introduced to this continuation of this theme of the presence of God. You start to get instructions on how to build the tabernacle. In Exodus, um, did I include this? Yeah, Exodus 25. Um, God says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I will show you. So from Exodus chapter 25 all the way to the end of Exodus, which is Exodus 40. So you've got 15, 16 chapters. It's 15 or 16 chapters of how to construct and how to build the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was, uh, was a tent. So just think of it like, uh, you know, like you're, you're, these people are camping. So God wants them to build 
this tent that God is going to dwell with them. God's not going to be just out there in the ether. He says, I want to be in your midst. This is the Emmanuel principle. Emmanuel means God with us. God wants to dwell with them as they are wandering around. And this, t- this tent, the way that it was structured, uh, I'm just going to... It's pretty straightforward, but you have the very center of the tent. This is from the bird's eye view. The very center of the tent, which is called the most holy place, or sometimes it's referred to as the holy of holies. And then you have this outer area called the, um, the holy place. And so what they would do on the, uh, in, in the, this outer area, they had altars set up. And all of these, you know, part of these laws, Leviticus and Exodus, all of these things, you have all of these descriptions of the way that God is going to be able to dwell in your midst is through the fact that we have to sacrifice some animals. Because uh, God is holy, He can't dwell in the midst of these people whose hearts are wicked and jacked up. I mean, the sin problem has not gone away. And so out of God's mercy, He says to these people, I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. But if I do that, I would slaughter everybody every second because of everything that they're doing wickedly. So out of mercy for you, I'm going to allow for substitutes. And so bring in animals that are, that are blameless, that have no blemishes, that there's, nothing, there's no defects on them, they're, 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 they're you know, perfect animals as it were, and they bring them to these altars, and um, the person who had brought the animal would put their hands on the animal, and the priest would slit the throat of the animal, bloods, I mean, Leviticus is just horrifically gory and bloody, you read through it, you're like, there's blood everywhere, it's nasty. And um, but the, the idea is, the person who's touching the animal, they're saying, my sin, my disobedience, my covenant breaking is being put on the animal, and then animal's getting slaughtered on, in my place, and it's blamelessness, it's blemish, blemishness, blemishlessness, that's a fun word, um, gets credited me. It's getting the blame for my life, and I'm getting the credit of its life. And that's how God has structured uh, this whole sort of sacrificial system as a way for God to dwell with his people and yet in some ways deal with the sin problem. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to dwell with them. And so, um, moving along, uh, let me erase this. So you got the tabernacle, you got a few covenants, you got the people, they're wandering around, and uh, they re-enter into the promised land. And uh, Moses dies right before they get brought in. And uh, this next guy named Joshua is appointed. This is the, the next book, in, if you're looking through the table of contents of your Bible, Joshua gets appointed. He leads the people into the land. They move into the land, and they start to spread out, and they start to set up shop. Now remember, there's 12 different uh, tribes, 12 different families, as it were. And they start to divvy up the land. So you got you know this tribe over here, and this tribe takes this spot, and this tribe takes that spot. It'd be like, uh, okay, the Howells, y'all take Central Gardens, Winklers, y'all take Evergreen, you know, it's, it's, it's like it's, look at all these kind of 12 major family groups and breaking them out and, and kind of spreading throughout the land. So, they set up shop, seems hopeful, seems like uh, we're back in business with this kingdom of God thing, we're back in the land, we're at ground zero, let's get the thing going. Problem is um, they're, they're all spread out, 
They're not unified. They start fighting with each other. Uh, foreign nations start coming in and fighting with them. There's um, uh, morally and spiritually, it's just uh, they they're they're just spiraling. It's just they're rotting from the inside out as a society. In fact, this is where the book of Judges comes in, which is the next book in the in the table of contents. When you, when you hear the word judges, don't think of um, like uh, Supreme Court judges. Judges were like military leaders that God would raise up to help fix some of these problems and deal with some of this stuff. In fact, if you read through the book of Judges, um, it is uh, it's horrendous and it's horrifying and it's graphic because it's showing you how terrible and how corrupted the people of God are. They're, they're rebelling against God, they're worshiping idols, they're murdering each other. It's, it's just a disaster. And so, at the end of, uh, towards the end of the book of Judges, you have this Reframe that keeps popping up over and over and over, and I'm, I put it in your handout. It's in those days Israel had no king; everyone did as he saw fit. So there's nobody in charge. There's no king. Everybody's just doing whatever they want to do, and it's complete chaos. Um, the uh, it's like the whole society is just kind of swirling uh, down the toilet, unraveling. But God had promised them there's going to be a kingdom, that we're going to have a kingdom. And they kept saying to God, okay, we want a king. Give us a king. Only the, the reason why they were asking for a king was not because they were interested in this kingdom of God project. They wanted to look like all the other nations around them that had kings. So, at uh, the very next book of the Bible, which is 1 Samuel, God says, okay, I'll give you a king. And he gives them King Saul. And Saul's the first king of Israel, and he's a total uh, train wreck. He's a total disaster, and the whole kingdom uh, suffers as a result of that. In fact, um, you see that in verse uh, uh, 15 of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, because he's talking to Saul, because you have not rejected the, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Just like Adam and Eve rejected the word of the Lord and chose to listen to the word of the serpent, Saul rejected the word of the Lord and chose to listen to his own uh, thinking, his own voice instead. And so God rejects Saul as the first king and God puts in place the true king. Saul was like the false king and he puts in place the true king, which is... This is terrible. I'll, I'll fix this at the break. Um, uh... Our buddy David. King David is the um, uh, the next sort of covenantal arrangement that God makes with His people. He says in Second Samuel verse seven, after God, after David has been put on the throne, he says, "Okay, here's a promise: your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever." Makes me think of the uh, the Sandlot. You know that scene, the Sandlot, forever. Anyway, um, God is looking at David and saying, "I am going to establish my kingdom through you, and you, somebody from your household, will be on the throne, ruling forever. My empire, my kingdom, will be established, and it will happen." forever and ever and ever and ever. And so that's the promise. And you get to this part in the story. 
And um, the kingdom, I'm going to erase all this. This is a lot of chaos. Um, the kingdom, all of these... Uh, all of these tribes, they get unified. Uh, he establishes uh, Jerusalem as the capital city, the city of David. Uh, there's flourishing, there's prosperity. I mean, it's not perfect. I mean, David's still a mess. There's still corruption. There's still problems. But overall, this blessing, kingdom of God thing looks like, okay, it's, it's hopeful. It's promising. We're beginning. And now we can start to move out and bless the rest of the world. David dies, and the kingdom gets passed on to his son, which is named Solomon. And Solomon, during Solomon's reign, the kingdom of God is, is still humming, it's still flourishing. And in fact, Solomon is the one who starts to build out uh, this next phase, uh, of, or this next thing of, the, uh, of this theme of the presence of God. Solomon is the one who builds the temple. And so look at um, look at First Kings chapter six. It says, "In the four hundred and eightieth year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord." And then 13 verses later, so Solomon built the house and finished it. It only took 13 verses, and he builds this temple. So, instead of the tabernacle being this portable thing, this tent where it can be moved around, now it is permanent, it's structured, God's presence is dwelling in the center of the city, God's kingdom is 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 established. It is it is growing. The temple is built. Uh, he, he's uh, dwelling with his people, and the kingdom is going. But uh, what looks really hopeful and really beautiful, and looks like this is a great start to things, um, the sin heart problem has not gone away. And so this kingdom, as beautiful and as wonderful as it's looking, starts to unravel. So look at, um, uh, so after Solomon dies, his son takes over the kingdom, and his name is Rehoboam. So if you're following the order here, you had Saul, then David, then Solomon, and now Solomon's son Rehoboam takes over the throne. He's in charge. And when he becomes king, you have all of these northern tribes and they come to Rehoboam and they say, hey, your dad Solomon was really actually uh, kind of harsh. He taxed us like crazy. He made us work hard. Um, now that you're in charge, could you maybe like chill out a little bit? Like, can you maybe take it easy with all the taxes and all the labor and all the stuff? And so here's what Rehoboam says in 1 Kings chapter 12. He says, okay, my father laid on you a heavy yoke. I get that. I'm sorry. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So they didn't take that message very well. And as a result, the year 925, these ten tribes in the north split. They secede from the Union. They break away and form their own nation, as it were. And so this nation starts to be called Israel, with the ten tribes in the north. And this nation down here starts to be called Judah, with 
two tribes in the south. You have uh, Jerusalem as their capital city. You have Samaria as their capital city. And uh, this is why the word Israel is actually really a confusing word in the Bible because it can mean like five different things. It can refer to the person who's the grandson of Abraham. It can refer to Jacob. It can refer to just the people of Israel as a whole. It can refer to the nation of Israel when they were united, and it can refer to the northern nation of just the northern tribes of Israel. So that's why it's a little bit confusing. But anyway, 925, you have this split, and um, they formed their own kingdom, and to make things really confusing, they have a king that takes over, and his name is Jeroboam. So you got Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Like, why would we? Why would we do this? Why can't you find a better name for for this guy? Um, but really, so at this point in the Bible story, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, this is what this whole era is about of just centuries of king after king after king. So if you ever read through those books, it'll be like Jeroboam did this and this and this and this, and then he died, and then he was succeeded by whoever came after him. And then he'll jump down here and say, in the kingdom of Judah, so-and-so did this and this and this and this, and then he died and then so-and-so took after him. And then it bounces back. The story keeps bouncing back and forth and back and forth. And really through this whole time, uh, similar to the era of the judges, it's mostly bad. Every now and then you have a, a king that does good, but all of these kings, for you know, 98% of these kings are terrible. They're corrupt, they're fighting, everything's unraveling, the, the moral and spiritual corruption is still there, it's still a disaster, it's still a mess. So, um, things start getting ugly, and at this point, God starts sending His people prophets. So when you get to the end of the Bible, you know, the Bible as it's actually written and laid out for you is not chronological. It kind of bounces around. But you get to the end of the Old Testament, you have all of those names that are kind of hard to pronounce. And uh, uh, Zechariah, Haggai, Obadiah. These were the prophets that in this era, God starts sending his... Um, sending prophets to, to act as his mouthpiece, basically to uh, confront and address the issues that are going on of the day. And uh, there's a lot of stuff in the prophets, but if you boil it down, I think that they're saying three main things, three big things that's happening with the prophets. Uh, which I'm just going to say, uh, well, I'll get there in a second. Um, uh, the first uh, main thing that gets rounded out in the prophets is God saying to his people, look, y'all are a mess, you're a disaster, and uh, this Messiah that I've been hinting at, talking about, he's going to come and he's going to make everything right. And so who the Messiah is really starts to fill out in the prophets. And what's fascinating is... The way that Israel was structured, the way that they had organized their society, there were three different offices, uh, you, might, you might say. Similar to how our government is structured, you've got the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch. These do different things. Uh, they had prophets who were like preachers. They spoke the words of God to God's people. They had priests. They did all the temple stuff. They sacrificed. They, they, they uh, were the middlemen, as it were, between God and his people. And then you had kings who did the politics and who did the governing and all that stuff. But 
God starts telling His people through the prophets, somebody's going to come and He's going to be all three of those in one. He's going to be a threefer. He's going to, all three of those offices are going to show up in one person. So let me, I'll give you a couple examples of this. Um, back in Deuteronomy, which Moses wrote, Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So there's this promise way back there that God said, I'm gonna, a prophet's going to show up and he's going to say my words. And then in Isaiah, um, the prophets, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch... We're going to come back to that word. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Prophet imagery, language. He's going to show up with the very words of God. Now that, that, that idea of the branch... This is an Old Testament word. To, and you think about like a tree, and you have this branch that grows off in the trunk. It's this image that says somebody's going to grow out of this whole family tree, this family line of the people of Israel, and he's going to be this one, this branch, that's going to be a prophet. And, look at this passage from Zechariah. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now that's a confusing passage, but it's at least saying this, that there's going to be a priest who is the branch who's also going to sit on the throne. Which is crazy, because priests don't sit on thrones. Kings do. And then look at this last one, Jeremiah 23. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. You recognize that language? I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. So, you've got this Messiah coming, who's going to be this branch, who is going to be a prophet, a priest, and a king, and there's all these other little micro details that you get about him if you read through the prophets. Like he will be, uh, he'll be born in Bethlehem. This is Micah chapter five. He'll uh, he'll be a king. He'll come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Zechariah nine, all these little things like that. But anyway, you start to see this fuller, bigger picture of what this Messiah is going to look like when he comes. That's kind of big idea number one of the prophets. Big idea number two 
of the prophets, they start talking about uh, a new covenant. Look at Jeremiah uh, 31. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So God says, okay, all of these covenants that I've been building, I'm going to make a new one. And it's not going to be like it's brand new. It's undoing all of this. This is the, this is the snowball that is rolling and rolling. This is, you know, another way to think about it is this is like, if this was a seed, now it is growing into a full acorn tree. This is an acorn. This is the full oak tree, as it were. And uh, this new covenant that God says, I'm going to make with my people, it's, it's going to finally deal with the heart problem. The new covenant is about fixing the fact that people can't obey the covenants. That's what the whole kind of new covenant arrangement is, that it's fixing their inability to keep it. And so, Jeremiah 31 says he's going to forgive their sins. Uh, the root problem of sin is going to be dealt with. Ezekiel says he's going to give people uh, a new heart, a fleshy new heart. And so, um, in other words, what this is basically, the prophets are saying is before you can bring healing to the rest of the world, you yourselves have to be healed. Before you can be a part of this giant restoration project that God's a part of, God's recruiting you into, you yourself have to be restored. And so that's what this whole new covenant arrangement is about. And then uh, one more. The big other third big idea from the prophets is you see this, uh, these dual realities of exile and restoration. So God keeps, through all these prophets, he's telling his people, repent, turn away from your sin, come back to me, come back to me, let's, let's do this whole kingdom thing, quit going your own way, come back to me. And he says, if you don't, because you're not, more curse and more, more damage is going to come. So look at um, uh, Micah number, uh, chapter 1. It says, therefore I will make Samaria, so he's talking about Israel, he's talking about the north, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. So God says, I'm going to wreck the people of Israel, the northern kingdom. Micah 3 Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed up like a field. Jerusalem, in the south, will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. So God's basically saying, I'm going to destroy everything. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you. It's, uh, it's, all going to be, it's all going to be wrecked. And yet, in the very midst of all of these promises of you're going to get kicked out of the land again, uh, 
I'm promising you mercy and I'm promising restoration in the midst of it. So look at this passage from Amos 9. It says, In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one shredding grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord God. So, you read through the prophets, and it gets. I mean, if you pay attention to that theme, it gets really confusing because, on the one hand, God says, "I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to judge you completely." destruction. And then one verse later he's going to say and by the way I'm going to restore you and I'm going to be merciful to you and I'm going to bring you back and it's going to be awesome. You're going to have this land that's going to be flowing with wine it's going to be amazing. Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So what happened? Well um, they refused to repent. God made good on his word and uh, in the year uh, 722 there's this big nation over here in the room for on this map called Assyria. And they come in and they just wipe out this whole area and all the people get either exiled or killed and the people of Israel are wiped out by Assyria. A few years later, in the year 586, this other big nation over here called Babylon comes in and they uh, wipe out and deport uh, tons of people from this area. There's our timer. All right, let me, let me finish this thought and then we'll, we'll take a break. Babylon comes in, wipes out these people, and brings them to Babylon. So you've got Israel that's basically wiped off the face of the earth, and you've got the people of Judah that are now basically destroyed or exiled in Babylon. What a great place to hit the pause button. Everything's destroyed and people are in exile. So um, why don't we take a 10-15 uh, minute break, get a, get a little pie break and uh, more coffee, and we'll keep plowing along. Sound good? Boom. All right, let's do it. Part two. Part two. Yeah. Everybody um, well caffeinated, ready to push through to the end? I know this is a lot for a, a Saturday morning after a late a late night with the Grizzlies, and uh, but I appreciate y'all being here and willing to willing to receive the the uh, you know fire hose, as it were. <clears throat> All right, I'm gonna set my I'm gonna get a drink. I'm gonna set my timer, and we'll be done. Like I said, I'll make some space for questions if uh, if you have any. Uh, so actually, I'll do. Um, I'll set this for uh, 50 minutes. How's that sound? And then I'll, I'll leave 10, 10 minutes for questions. And then if y'all if y'all have more questions after 10 minutes, y'all can come up and ask them. Sound good? Boom! Ready to rock and roll? Stephen, you ready? <laughs> okay, good. All right, we're back. Um, okay, so here's where we left it. 
Israel and Judah uh, destroyed, exiled. In fact, if you read through this portion of the Bible, this is, uh, it's incredibly sad, it's incredibly depressing. This is where the book of Lamentations comes in. It's just this horrific, sad poetry about how terrible this season uh, has been. And, um, and yet, you still have this lingering uh, promise of restoration out there. You've got this lingering promise of somebody's going to come in and fix all this. And so, um, in the year 536 B.C., uh, I, keep, I keep getting ink on this finger. Um, so you've got the people of God in Babylon. I wish I had more room over here. Babylon gets taken over by this other growing juggernaut empire called Persia. So Persia comes in, takes over Babylon, and once the Persian king is in place, they've got all these exiles of Israelites in his kingdom. His name is Cyrus, and in the year 536 B.C., Cyrus says, yeah, you go back. You go back. So eventually people start coming back to Jerusalem, you're picking this theme. They keep coming. They keep leaving. They keep coming back. They come back to Jerusalem and they start setting up shop. They start rebuilding this world that has been kind of destroyed. And uh, this is what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are about. Ezra is about the people of God coming in and rebuilding their, rebuilding their city and rebuilding the temple. Uh, the book of Nehemiah is about the people setting out to rebuild the wall around the city so that they have protection again. So they get in and they start to restore things, but this restoration was a total letdown. Because uh, instead of this giant empire that they had, they uh, now uh, basically only have uh, kind of Jerusalem in the outskirts around it. And Jerusalem had been devastated. It's just kind of it's like living in the slums when you're used to living in like, you know, a, a palace, a giant kingdom as it were. And so when they rebuild the temple, uh, look at what happens in Ezra 3. It says, uh, with praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, the one that Solomon built, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping because the people made so much noise. In other words, the people who had seen the original temple and how giant and magnificent and awesome it was, they were like, this thing's a total letdown. This is the restoration that we were promised, this big, giant, awesome wine flowing through the hills. This is it. This is a, this is a disaster. So, that's how the Old Testament ends. It just ends like that. And uh, you, you have all of these themes open-ended. You have all of these hopes and all of these promises, just all of these open tabs. Nothing gets closed. And in fact, uh, for 400 years, uh, God stops interacting with God's people verbally. No more prophets. Like, he, he goes silent. He goes mute. And in fact, in, in the scene of world history, you've got this guy named um, Alexander the Great, 
who starts taking over the entire world. And so Rome and the Roman Empire is, is spreading and sort of taking over things. So, so in this period, you have the people of Israel here, but they're still now in subjugation to Rome. They have kind of their own... They have their own kind of thing going, but they're, they're in political bondage to this greater kind of political entity above them. And so, Greek becomes the dominant language of this landscape, of this, this world. 400 years go by, and that's where the story, that's where the story stops. And then you get the third next big chapter of the Bible storyline, redemption. At creation, the fall, and now you come to redemption. And redemption, this chapter begins, of course, with the arrival of Jesus. I'm going to make some space over here. You all know where Italy is. And you get this next phase of the development of the presence of God. Remember that whole um, uh, Emmanuel principle? God with us? Look at how the Bible, or how the New Testament begins. Matthew 1.23 The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The whole claim of the New Testament is that God Himself shows up to His very people. And in fact, look at this, John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That word dwelling is the Greek word for tabernacle. It says, it's, it, all these themes the New Testament is trying to intentionally connect to say, He is the very presence of God with us. The fulfillment of all of this big theme finds its you know, apex in Jesus. Look at John 2. Jesus answered them. So they're walking around this, this rebuilt temple, and Jesus says, You destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. And they're like, Okay, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it again in three days? You're crazy. And Jesus says, Okay, well, verse 21, John writes, But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So, Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. I'm the true tabernacle. I am the presence of God with you, showed up in the flesh, in person. And look at this next theme, the kingdom of God. This really starts to get filled out in the, in the person of Jesus because where does the Son of God, where does God decide to show up? could have chosen any spot on the planet and yet he chose ground zero of where the kingdom of God was supposed to begin and get established and then from there move out to the rest of the world. He shows up right here and if you, if you uh, are connecting the dots, he, um, the Bible is explicit that he is the, um, he's the son of Adam. He's the descendant of the promised descendant of Adam and Eve. You know, when you, you get to the opening chapters of the uh, New Testament, you go through all of those kind of boring genealogies of this person. You know, Jesus was traced to this person, this person, this person. The, the, the whole beginning of Luke is showing you that Jesus traces his genealogy back to Adam, back to Adam and Eve. He is this long-awaited Messiah descendant who is going to come and crush Satan's head and yet be wounded in the process and destroy evil. Another little detail on this kingdom of God business. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, the opening verse of the New Testament begins like this. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
So again, it's connecting you to this idea that Jesus is, he's the fulfillment of what the people of Israel were supposed to be. God's A-team finds its fulfillment in Jesus himself. He's the one who's going to come and do what Israel couldn't do and bring about the kingdom of God. And in fact, even in that same verse where it says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the New Testament wants you to connect all of these themes. He is the long-awaited uh, Davidic king. He's the great-great-great-great-grandson of David who's going to sit on David's throne and rule and begin this king of God and rule over the empire forever. So when Jesus shows up and begins his public ministry, the first thing out of his mouth in the Gospel of Mark, he says, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And so when Jesus arrives, the kingdom of God is about to be fully inaugurated, fully kicked off. This thing that has been trying to get going over and over and over and it can't get going, Jesus shows up and says, it's go time. We're now, we're now ready to hit go on this whole restoration project for the world. And uh, he says the same thing that all the prophets and everybody said before him, repent. Trust in God, believe in Him, have faith in Him alone. And then as he goes through his ministry, what do we see him doing? I included, I think I included Luke 7 in your, in your handout. Uh, it says, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come? Are you this long-awaited Messiah that's going to come fix everything? Or do we need to expect somebody else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And so he replied to the messengers. So here's his answer. They ask him, are you the, the long-awaited Messiah? And Jesus says, okay, here's, here's your answer to that question. Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What's he doing? He's undoing all of the evil. He's undoing the chaos. All of the things that have vandalized and wrecked God's good world, he's, he's, he's reversing it. He's reversing death. He's reversing blindness. He's bringing things back to the way that they were supposed to be. In other words, he's establishing shalom. He's giving you little snapshots of what he is, what he is trying to do in the world, bringing blessing, bringing shalom. And, uh, and then what do you see at the center of his heart? In Matthew 6, you have the famous Lord's Prayer, which we pray every single week here. And how does he say, how does he teach us how we should pray? He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, this is what God has always been about. This is what I'm about. It's bringing God's will and his kingdom to be done on earth in the same way that's being perfectly done right now in heaven. So, Jesus comes. He establishes the kingdom. And we could, get, we could go into the weeds here, but I'll just say this in passing. Um, even though he has inaugurated his kingdom and it's, it has finally actually begun, uh, if you look around, I mean, the world is still a mess. There's still death and decay and destruction and chaos. And so even though the kingdom has, has actually been inaugurated, it has not come in its fullness. And this is what theologians refer to as this already not yet principle. The kingdom is already established in Jesus, but it is not yet here in its fullness. And so there's this 
tension that we live in as God establishes his kingdom. It's here, but not yet fully. So, third theme, how does Jesus fulfill this covenant theme? Well, um, you hear us say it every single week when we go through the Lord's table. Um, Jesus takes the cup, and in Luke chapter 22, he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. He sees himself as being the fulfillment, not just of this new covenant, but of all of this trajectory of everything that came before it. So think about Adam. Adam was the representative of the old humanity. He represented all human beings in him. Jesus is the representative of all of the new humanity. This is what um, Romans chapter 5 is about, basically saying everybody has to be represented before God by either one or two. One of two people represents you before God. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Those are, those are the only two options that you have. Are you going to be represented by Adam to the Father, or are you going to be represented by Jesus to the Father? Look at uh, Romans 5. It says, For if, because of one man's trespass, that's referring to Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There's a lot going on there, but this is basically what's going on. Adam's conditions for the covenant were, if you keep the terms, you receive the blessing. If you don't keep the terms, you get the curse. And, at, and Jesus comes along and keeps the terms. He does what Adam failed to do. Only Jesus didn't receive blessing. Jesus received the curse so that we could receive the blessing. He's acting as our substitute, doing what Adam can't do. Same, same uh, idea with... Oh, I forgot. When I rewrote this, I forgot Noah. Here's Noah. Sorry, Noah. Um, you have Adam, and then what about Noah? Remember Noah's promise? God's, uh, God's promise to Noah was, I'm not going to destroy the earth again. The next time I unload my wrath, it's not going to be directed on you. It's going to be directed on me. Uh, look at this verse from 1 John chapter 4. It says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a fun, you know, thousand-dollar Bible word. It basically means turning away of wrath. That God has satisfied His justice. He's satisfied His wrath. He's, he's not, he has no more judgment or wrath to pour out on us because it's been fully poured out on Jesus. Jesus gets the war bow, as it were, in our place. That's what this is you know, all about. Uh, what about Abraham? You know, Abraham had promised him uh, land and descendants and blessing. And uh, the whole land thing is about inaugurating the kingdom. Of, like it's, it's, the kingdom has officially started. And actually when you get to Romans 4, uh, Paul says that Abraham wasn't just promised a little bit of Middle Eastern real estate. The ultimate kind of what was behind that promise was the whole world. And so Jesus has come to win back the entire world, as it were. And then here's the second thing that um, Abraham was promised, was promised descendants. Sand on the seashore, stars in the sky. And uh, when you get to Romans 4 and Galatians 4, it makes this explicit statement that even though people like you and me may not be... Uh, 
ethnically, racially Jewish. You know, if all the promises are, are given, if all the blessing is reserved for people who are from Abraham's family, his bloodline, well, you and me, or I'll just speak for me, I'm not Jewish. I'm, you know, European. I'm a Gentile. So how, how do we get access to those blessings? Well, the Bible says, you become a child of Abraham through faith. When you trust in Jesus, you get brought into this kind of avalanche of blessing because of faith. That's what Romans 4 and Galatians uh, uh, 4 are about. And then blessing. Again, look at uh, Galatians 3. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In other words, Paul's basically saying Jesus got all the covenant curses, so that you and I could receive all the covenant blessings. Okay? Well what about Moses? Moses, you remember the commandment was uh, to his, uh, or the covenant arrangement was for his people, just perfectly obey this giant mass of law that I've given you in Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Just perfectly obey it. And of course they can't. They don't have the ability to. Well, someone comes who can. Jesus comes and he fulfills and keeps the law in its entirety. And he does that um, so that you, he, he's the, he's the blameless, perfect lamb, as it were. And by him accruing this credit of righteousness, you get credit for it. He gets the blame for your life, you get the credit for his life. This is the whole, um, this is what the Bible refers to as justification. Justification, if you remember at the very beginning when I said sin, there's an objective problem and there's a subjective problem. This is dealing with the objective, the legal problem. God takes away our legal guilt and he puts it on Jesus. That's what justification is. And then, as we're going to see here in a minute, God gives us his spirit. He, he, he removes us from the inside out and gives us the ability to begin, for, to begin walking in his ways, to begin keeping his law. He gives us the ability to love each other, which is God dealing with the subjective problem. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. He's dealing with the objective issue and he's dealing with the existential personal corruption issue as well. So, uh, well, I skip this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, um, it says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the whole justification substitutionary principle. All right, what about David? David? Uh, Jesus is the long-awaited son of David to reclaim the throne and reign over the earth, not just for a lifetime, but forever. Forever and ever and ever. He's the true heir of the Davidic dynasty. And that's why when you read through the Gospels, it's fascinating how many times people from the street, people who are calling out to him, are always referring to him as son of David. Son of David. Son of David. In fact, I included, here's Matthew 21. And the crowds that went, this is Palm Sunday, the crowds went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, 
he's obviously identified as the kind of great Davidic hope. And then he is the fulfillment of the new covenant. He says the new covenant is, um, uh, this cup is a new covenant which is uh, poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. He deals with the sin problem, the heart problem. Look at, uh, here's Hebrews 8. It says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, that's a lot, and we just threw a ton at you from a 30,000 foot view, but what this is, this theme finds its crescendo in Jesus and saying everything that was promised in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Christ. He, you know, the kingship and justification, blessing, land, descendants, forgiveness, uh, sanctification, justification, all of that is wrapped up in Jesus. Last theme, Messiah. Uh, this should be pretty obvious by now. The Bible thinks that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, you know Jesus Christ. The word Christ. Christ is not his last name. Like Mr. Christ. You know, Christ, table of two. Um, uh, Christ is um, in e the English word that's translating the word for... The, anyway, the, the Hebrew word behind where we get the word Christ is Messiah. Messiah. That's what Christ means. It means Messiah or anointed one. He's the long-awaited one who will crush Satan's head. He'll be wounded in the process. And he's the branch, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so here's a couple of um, how you see this prophet, priest, king thing fleshed out in the New Testament. Uh, when you get to John 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, it's fascinating. Here's what they say. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They begin to say, okay, this guy, something's different about this guy. Is this guy the prophet, the long-awaited branch who's going to come? And, of course, the Bible says, yes, he doesn't just come with the words of God. He comes as the Word himself. He is the, the self-disclosure of God, not just in word form, but in his very personhood. And then what about the uh, priest thing? Uh, when you know priests were the ones that would slit the, th the the throat of the animal, they were the ones that were mediating between God, sorry, between God and His people. They were the middleman. Uh, but the Bible says Jesus is a priest. He's a high priest. But what's unique about him is that he's not sacrificing an animal. He's sacrificing himself. The priest himself is the lamb. Look at uh, Hebrews seven. It says, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And then what about the king piece? Well, uh, the Bible refers to him as uh, king of kings and the lord of lords. And every knee will eventually bow down before him. Look at First um, Timothy six thirteen. Paul writes, "I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords." So Jesus is the fulfillment of all these themes. That's the point I'm trying to make. And if you go back to the story, 
Jesus lives this perfect life, fulfills the law, fulfills the covenant, fulfills the terms of the covenant, dies on the cross in our place. Three days later, he's raised from the dead, and the kingdom of God is now officially uh, underway. The kingdom is, is established. He um, uh, ascends into heaven and then commissions his people to go continue to participate in this thing that has always been the deal but has never really gotten off the ground. And in Acts chapter 2 um, is when the, it's Pentecost. It's when God sends his spirit on his people to indwell them and and then commissions them to go and continue to do this thing, to be fruitful and increase a number and bring the kingdom of God to the earth. So, all of these four themes eventually find their um, the next phase of their fulfillment in you, in the church, which is kind of crazy. So look at how... Um, the Bible says the presence of God ends up in the church. Look at um, uh, Hebrews chapter 2. It says, uh, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God is basically saying, I, this whole time, this Emmanuel thing, I've wanted to be with you, I've wanted to dwell with you, I've made temples and tabernacles and I've sent Jesus, and now ultimately and finally I am going to dwell in you by my Spirit. What about this next theme, the kingdom of God? Well, the Bible says that we are now stewards of this kingdom. Look at Matthew 28. It says, Then Jesus came to them, this is after his resurrection, and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which is a claim of uh, kingship. He's saying, I'm the true king, I'm the, I'm the king of kings. Now what? Okay? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. And I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And here's what he says in the next uh, book in Acts chapter 1. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what's he saying? He's saying the same thing he's always been saying. I want you to go and fill the earth with my redeemed images. I want you to be fruitful, and I want you to increase in number, and I want you to fill the earth and subdue it for my glory and for my kingship so that my will will be done on earth in the same way that it's being done perfectly in heaven. Third thing, we are the recipients of the covenant. Again, Luke 22, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, which is, I won't go into all of this, but this is the same thing I said earlier, that all of these blessings, all of these promises are given to us. When 
we find ourselves in Him, in Jesus. And then the last thing. Um, the church is described as the body of Christ. Meaning we're, we're the, you know, quite literally, it's we are the body of the Messiah. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Which means that the church physically embodies Jesus in the world. We're the hands and the feet of the Messiah in the world. And uh, here's where um, when you're at the... Um, uh, uh, when you're looking at the, the map of the shopping mall or of the airport, this is where we are in human history. You are here. You know, the rest of the New Testament is this happening. Churches are spreading. You read through the book of Acts. That's what the, the church is spreading out and doing this thing. The rest of the New Testament is letters that are being written between churches, between pastors and people that are um, doing this thing, encouraging each other, challenging each other, correcting each other. And 2,000 years of this happened, and here we are. This is, the, this is where we are in the story. 2,000 years of this. So... Um, the story doesn't end here, though. This is, you know, as far as as far as we are in space and time, as it were. Uh, but the Bible says that all of these themes are ultimately going to find their fulfillment in this fourth chapter. And so, I'm going to look at that uh, briefly with you, and we're, we're doing great on time. This fourth chapter is called Restoration. Uh, like I said, some theologians uh, use the word or prefer the word consummation, but it's this idea that all of these themes, even though we're in this already not yet moment, ultimately one day the kingdom will come in all of its fullness and all of these themes will find its ultimate apex and ultimate completion. So let me give you uh, one of these at a time. What about this first one, the presence of God? Well, the ultimate promise is that God will be with his people in an ultimate sense, that his presence itself will fill the earth. Look at um, Revelation 21, how the Bible ends. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his God, and God himself will be with them and be their God. In fact, that's how the Bible ends. It ends with a wedding. This is this picture of God's people, God's people adorned as a bride. In fact, Revelation 19 is this picture of this wedding feast, just a giant blowout wedding reception. And nothing, in terms of dwelling with each other, nothing can feel, there's no metaphor that gets more intimate than a, than a marriage, a husband and wife dwelling with each other, and yet that's the imagery that the Bible gives of how God's going to dwell with his people on the earth when everything is restored. Second theme, the theme of the kingdom of God. Look at Revelation 11. You're, you're looking into the future and it says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so that's the great hope of the Bible, is that this kingdom thing will spread out over the entire world, and the entire world will 
will be his empire, that his will will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. And the, um, uh, this is why uh, when you get to Revelation 21, it talks about heaven itself descending on the earth where his, where his reign, which is being perfectly done in heaven, is being done perfectly on this earth as well. And so look at, um, look at Isaiah 65. This is this ultimate restoration that all the prophets were pointing to. Remember when they came back out of exile and the temple was kind of garbage and the place where they're living is kind of depressing? That was not their great hope. The great hope is this. This is what they're ultimately pointing to and talking about. Isaiah 65 writes this. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So you have this beautiful picture of paradise, of shalom, of, uh, of harmony again. And then it gets even sweeter in Revelation 21, and this gets filled out a little bit more. It says, again, I'll just read it, even though we just read it. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and he who was seated on the throne said I am making everything new and he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true so this is our ultimate hope is the kingdom of God coming in its fullness shalom being restored death being done away with resurrection God on the throne no more sadness no more tears no more chaos no more sin the world in its fullness, the way that it was originally designed to be, only more glorious and more beautiful because God's redeemed it. Um, third one, covenant. Uh, you know, the, this language of 
curse and blessing all find, it's all covenant language you know when, when Adam and Eve broke the covenant uh, the curse kind of spread out like the, the bag of tea you know throughout the whole world and um, God says in the new heavens and new earth uh, the world will no longer be engulfed uh, by a curse in fact, you see that in Revelation 22. No longer will there be any curse. The world will not be uh, engulfed in curse. It will be engulfed in blessing. In fact, this is uh, what the great Christmas hymn that we sing is all about. Joy to the world. Do you remember? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That's Genesis 3 curse imagery. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, far as the... You know, this is the, what that song is about. It's all about this. Covenant blessings replacing these covenant curses. In fact, look at Isaiah 25. It's one of my favorite um, passages. Just this picture of blessing and this ultimate restoration. It says, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the, His people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So instead of curse, death, destruction, you have blessing, life, and a feast. That's the picture. The world ends in a party. Messiah, last thing. Um, this, this, this one who um, ultimately comes and crushes and destroys Satan. That's what the end of Revelation is about, is this one who is the intelligence behind all of the sin and suffering and destruction in the world. He is, he is, he is uh, removed from existence. And he is, the, uh, he, is the, he is the prophet, priest, and the king that we've all uh, longed for and waited for to come. In fact, Revelation 4 and 5 is a fascinating two chapters of describing this uh, worship scene with all of these rings and rows of different things happening, but at the center of this kind of like... Um, arena of worship and praise of people and of angels at the very center of this worship service is a throne and on the throne is a slain lamb and it's this picture of Jesus who was crucified in our place is the center of human history he's the center of the whole story he's the one in whom we worship in fact here's a um, and he's the one who's ruling look at um, look at Revelation 5 verse 11 it says then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands all these people all these things are saying with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In other words, the one who's ruling the universe is a Lamb who was slain. That's, that's the picture. So that's the great hope. That's how the Bible ends. And... Um, 
It's always fun to quote C.S. Lewis or read this last little chapter of the end of his Chronicles of Narnia series. I think it's a great way to kind of tag the end of the whole storyline of the Bible. So here's the end of that story. Here's what he writes, and it's applicable. He says, And he spoke, and he no longer looked at them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. It's beautiful. So that's the Bible in two hours, less than two hours. Um, but I, I wanted, uh, I just, I, this was a last minute thought. I wasn't planning on doing this, but I just added this. So I'm just going to say these. Um, if we had time, I was going to cover this, and we have we have a few minutes. So I'm going to cover this real quick. These are these are just three takeaways, three kind of big lessons. After all of that, just the whole Bible thrown in your face. Uh, what are three big takeaways from all this? And I would say um, three three big ideas that came to mind for me was uh, first uh, the the centrality of Jesus. That the Bible is about Jesus, and this is a simple this is a simple point, but it's a profound point because there's a lot of people in the church that when they come to the Bible, they assume it's fundamentally about us. And so we go to the Bible to get advice. We go to the Bible to get principles about how to live our life. I want to extract all the data about how to manage our money in a Christian way, or how to how to date in a Christian way, or how to parent, or you know whatever. There's all sorts of ways that people relate to the Bible about how does this, how do I do my life? It's like the blueprint. It's the manual about how to do my life, and. All of that is true. All of that is important. The Bible does speak to our lives. The Bible does guide us on how to live our lives. But I think it's important for you to see, when you step back and see the whole thing, it's fundamentally not about us. It's primarily, basically, at its most basic, primary, first and foremost sense, it's about Jesus. Secondarily, it's about us, because we're connected to Jesus. But ultimately, He is the center of the whole thing. This is why, um, at Redeemer, here, um, the first thing that we say, what we do and who we are, and that we emphasize is that we, we, we want to be people who rest, because that's the relationship. The, we don't show up and say, okay, we're going to get busy for Jesus, we're going to do a bunch of stuff for God. The first thing is we throw ourselves and collapse into His arms, because He's the one who saves us. He's the one that empowers us. We can't, you know, the Bible, the story has showed us over and over, we can't do this. Whenever Ben does the, a benediction at the front, he says, you cannot and you will not do this on your own. So that's why we rest in Jesus. In fact, I included this giant quote. I'm not going to read it uh, all to you. Uh, you may have heard this before. Uh, I've heard Tim Keller give this quote before, and I've heard other people attribute it to another pastor named Sinclair Ferguson. I don't really know where this came from, so I'm, a, I'm attributing it to Sinclair Ferguson, but don't 
quote me on this. Take this with a grain of salt. I don't know where this came from. But I'm just going to read a little bit of this. this you, you need to read this on your own. But it, it basically shows you how Jesus, the whole Bible is about Jesus. It says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. I mean, on and on and on, on and you go and the whole point is all of these people, all of these characters, all of these stories, all of these images, they're all about Jesus. These are, the, these are shadows pointing to the, to, the full, to the real thing, to the fulfillment. In fact, look at the very uh, last, kind of towards the end, where it says, um, maybe one, two, three, four lines up, Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. On and on and on and on. Point is, the Bible is about Jesus. Here's the second thing, big takeaway. <coughs> the significance of the church. Sorry, I was hoping my, my, my throat could keep going. I'm almost at the end, but we're going to take a sit break. Sit break over. Um, the significance of the church. John Stott uh, has this great quote. He says, The church lies, that's not supposed to say ash, it's supposed to say at, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. Meaning, as you see all the way back through the beginning, that God has always worked through people. He's always worked through his people that are gathered together as, as a worshiping community. In other words, God's agenda in the world is not to just collect individual human beings like Skittles, just grabbing Skittles here and there, but he's gathering people together as a family so that as a corporate entity, they're spreading out and being the agents of blessing that he's called them to be. So the church is really important. That's why um, we emphasize this remind thing. You know, I talk about rest and remind and reflect. Uh, if you want to decode all of that, rest basically means believe the gospel, trust in Jesus. Remind is about community. It's about relationships, doing, you know, doing our church together. We do all these things together. This is why this is important. And then the last big thing is the priority of mission. That we're called and redeemed by Jesus to participate in this bigger mission that God is up to in the world. This is an amazing quote. If you can wrap your head around this quote, I think it will bless you and serve you well. Um, he's, this is Christopher Wright in his book, The Mission of God. He says, mission is not ours. Mission is God's. Certainly the mission of God is the prior reality out of which flows the mission that we get involved in. Or, has, as has been nicely put, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. 
And I just think that reframes everything that we're doing because what it shows you is from the very beginning, God's mission was He wants His people to spread out. He wants the kingdom of God to come to earth as it is in heaven. He wants uh, the world to be uh, uh, ruled for the sake of His glory. He wants the world restored. That's what He's up to. And we're brought in to participate in that. So that's not busy work for us. He's not just saying, I want people, and then I'm going to give you all something to do. He said, I'm, I'm up to something big in the world, and I'm, and I'm inviting you, redeeming you, and enfolding you into this bigger thing that I'm up to. That's why we try to reflect God's love to Midtown and hopefully to the rest of the world. Now, we're done. And I've got two minutes to spare. So, we did it. Good work, team. Um, well done. Thank you. So, um, you know, if y'all have questions, let's 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 maybe kick some of this stuff around. On the back of your bulletin or the back of your uh, handout, I included some other just resources. I, sometimes I feel like those kind of big zoom out graphs or, or, or uh, images can be helpful just to kind of see how the Bible is structured, how it's organized, different dates and things like that. I like that kind of stuff. So if that's helpful, great. But um, questions, comments. Complaints, criticisms, critiques, conundrums, any, um, you know, I'll, ten minutes we'll take questions and uh, if you don't, we'll leave early. So what do you think? I love that. Just perfectly answered all the questions. Every question you've ever had about the Bible just... It's over. Oh, good. Good. Well, thanks. Sweet. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Thanks. It's fun. I did this... Um, I was telling Ben, I did this for uh, some college students maybe 12 years ago. It was when I was... Um, fairly fresh out of out of seminary, and you know, you go to seminary and they just back a dump truck into your brain and just unload all of this Bible data, and then they send, you know, you get hired, you get called into ministry, and then <laughs> it's, you, you get out on the field and you just want to unload all of this data, and so this is why I, I did this for these college students, and I was looking back at my notes from 12 years ago, and I was like, oh my goodness, I was, it was way too much, it was way too heady and nerdy, and just like, so the, we, we, we trimmed it down, and I'm glad that, you know, it was, it was helpful for me to just be able to work through some of this stuff, but um, I think it's important, like I said, to have, to see the big picture, because sometimes you just, you show up in a, you're just lost. You're like, okay, I can, I kind of have heard David before, but I don't know where we are, and so anyway, glad it was helpful. Any other thoughts or questions? Not that you have to have any, but... That's, that's great. If you have questions that you want to ask, I'll stick around and, and you can ask me privately. But um, uh, otherwise, how about I close this in prayer and we'll be done. Sound good? Thank you all again for being here, being around to come on a Saturday. I know it's early. Many people were up late last night. And um, 
uh, hopefully y'all drink some coffee and we're, we're ready to start the day. So uh, let me pray. Father, we're grateful um, to be together. We're grateful for this majestic, sweeping project that you are up to in the world to fix and to heal and to redeem what has been lost and what has been broken and what has been destroyed. And we... Um, it's easy to miss that. It's easy to get granular in the details and the weeds of our own lives and our own responsibilities and laundry and fixing lunches and paying bills and mowing the yard and to forget that we are uh, recruited and redeemed and swept up into this bigger thing that you're doing in the world. And what a privilege it is. What an honor it is that we get to be representatives of the King. And so I pray that you would... Um, Take this and not just fill our heads with data, but I pray that you would activate our hearts, that you would um, help us to understand our lives in the context of this story. And would you empower us by your Spirit more and more that we might be people who love, that we might be people that are uh, participating and blessing the world in the name of Jesus, that we might be people that are... Uh, have soft and fleshy hearts that are quick to worship, quick to give ourselves away, quick to participate in what you're doing. So we thank you and I uh, pray that you would bless these folks and keep them as we leave here and go about uh, the rest of our day. And uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.